0: Trump is being voted out of office and the opportunity for a different trajectory evolves. It's worse than a crime. It's a mistake.
1: Welcome back to Uncommon Decency. As the Biden team steps in, it's having to deal with a major strategic rivalry with China that had dominated the Trump era. But only weeks before its inauguration, the new American administration was blindsided by the ENU signing of the investment agreement of China. At a time when China's human rights records in Xinjiang worsens, and given the rising tensions in Hong Kong, the deal has been, to say the least, very controversial.
2: Now, we've invited two noted critics of the deal. So forgive us if at times we strike the tone of a Xi Jinping advocate. And that was only lest the whole episode became a big, fad Communist Party of China fest.
1: Bash- Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform to give us a like and a review. It helps us tremendously to reach out to so many more of you. And it gives us a motivation to keep getting fantastic guests every week for you. We are very pleased to have with us two China watchers to discuss the issue of the Chinese investment agreement with the European Union. François Goudemont, you're historian by trade and you focus on China and East Asia. You're a senior advisor on China for French think tank, Institut Montaigne, and a non-resident fellow associate at Carnegie. We Invite our listeners to go on Institut Montaigne's website to catch up with what you've written, because it's very thorough and very insightful on what the conversation we're going to have right now. Reinhard Butikhofer, you're a German MEP, you're part of the European Greens. Uh, You studied Sinology as a student, and throughout your career, you've kept close attention to China, and you are now the president of a delegation for relations with the People's Republic of China and on the Committee of Foreign Affairs. Thank you, both of you.
0: My pleasure. But for full disclosure, I should add that I do not speak Mandarin.
1: Ah, well, that's why the conversation is strictly in English. To get us started, you can give us a bit of an overview of this agreement, the philosophy of the agreement, its architecture, as well as maybe a bit of a little little bit of a history behind it. What's in it for China? What's in it for the EU? Why did the Commission go with this agreement, the kind of last minute rush? Uh, Because, you know, both of you have been pretty vocal against it. Francois, you've called it overpowered and oversold. Uh, what motivates our position in uh, again if you could go for the philosophy and and history of the agreements
3: i actually wrote it was uh uh, oversold and underpowered uh, which i think is the the description look if the us was signing an investment deal whether under donald trump or under a new president it would just be saying hey we signed it because it's a good deal it's our interest regarding investment it wouldn't say it has saved the free world Uh, if japan uh, was signing a deal, it wouldn't be making those claims either. It's a peculiar European, uh, ambition, uh, to pretend that every agreement that it signs, uh, uh represents its values and is in, in an advance of values mm-hmm. that may be possible or easy, you know, if you're dealing with Japan, or even if you're dealing with South Korea, I don't mis- underestimate the difficulties even there, but here we're dealing with China, uh, with the People's Republic of China under Xi Jinping. So I think one of the reasons that the debate has heated up is that the EU has attempted to claim too much for it. Now, what I hear is that a lot of uh, uh, public officials in the EU, in the commission, particularly in digital trade, are now busy backpedaling and saying, hey, come on, we're not gonna change the world. We know we're not gonna achieve all the structural changes we need with China. We just progressed on the view and hey, we have enforcement and hey, we're going to take a lot of other measures uh, to try and defend our interest facing China. So, you know, there are two ways to look at this. Uh, and the first I think would be, it's been seven years, seven years of pretty sterile talks and sometimes absence of talks, I think 35 rounds uh, with the Chinese and they moved in only at the last minute. Was it the last minute uh, because the EU itself had set a deadline, Uh, Mrs. van der Leyen even had said that if the agreement wasn't reached by the end of of 2020, the strategic agenda of cooperation uh, would be in question with China, horrible threat you can imagine uh, for the Chinese leader. I'm joking, of course. Uh, Or is it because we were in between two US administrations because the Chinese have a good reason to worry about uh, you know better coordination more achievement from the next administration at least less disorganization and promises of coordination with allies i leave you uh, to decide this so we should discuss the agreement at two levels one is this broad strategic uh, level and it even includes values you know environment labor standards and when it goes for china it goes pretty far human rights abuses and so forth and how does the agreement which claims it defends values addresses it the other one is as we would address any kind of practical trade or investment agreement with one little problem up to now the commission has not published what should be the core of the agreement that is the list of sectors opened or closed the reservations uh, that are made on these openings, uh, reportedly 150 pages of it, we just have rumors about it. We don't have ac- accurate information.
1: Well, Reynard, you're a German MEP, so you're supposed to be seeing the full agreement. Maybe you have a better uh, insight on the text. Oh Well,
0: well um, uh, uh, it is obvious that uh, Germany in particular, the chancellor, played uh, an exceptional role in uh, pulling this off. I would describe the um, events uh, of the last decade of December last year as um, a a kind of uh, halfway friendly takeover of the final negotiations by the chancellery and the commission uh, played just second fiddle for uh, the the decisive days. Um, But I would also, uh, like to go back a little bit and and, and give uh, give some some context. When the council agreed on the negotiating mandate um, about seven years ago, that was a completely different China that we were dealing with or that we had in mind. Those were the days when people still believed in. Uh, convergence, economic and even political convergence between the West and China. We have long lost that hope. That was the days when um, uh, every conversation uh, on the relationship between the EU and the PRC was focusing on strategic cooperation and win-win goals. Today, we have a different understanding, and this is um, what uh, the experience that we have made with uh, Xi Jinping's China boils down to. It is still a China with which we try to cooperate, uh, a China with which we have to compete, but it is also a systemic rival. And this has not been sufficiently captured in the comprehensive agreement on investment. Uh, In those days long past, you could have imagined that compartmentalization of China policy could work. So on one hand, on one weekend, you would uh, give your Sunday sermon about human rights and everything. And uh, then during the following week, you uh, would uh, go back to business and, and uh, promote uh, trade and investment. But um, with a systemic rival, it's impossible to to pursue the rivalry on Monday and for the rest of the week, you forget about it. You can cooperate as a systemic rival, um, uh, but you have to do it in a different way. And you cannot, I repeat that, pursue a stovepipe approach or a silo approach Approach to the relationship, and um, this basically caught up with us in the result of these negotiations. Uh, the um, but I don't want to to just look at the um, the, the the angle of values and 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 the uh, the uh, critical remark that François has made. Um, Uh, I'm not sure whether I would share that completely. I would would certainly um, argue from my point of view that such an agreement should reflect our values. And in this particular case, that um, comes uh, to the uh, question of forced labor. Hmm.
4: Uh,
0: I I think that's where human rights and where... um, economic concerns intersect. Are we willing to accept that China is um, rampantly using forced labor in particular in Xinjiang, but also in other parts of the country? Do we accept that as a normal part of an economic relationship uh, for uh, values reasons, but also for uh, economic reasons, reasons, that pertain to fair competition, I I think we should reject that proposition. But more broadly, I would uh, not restrict uh, the the conversation, as I um, said, to that one angle. I would also look at uh, European interests. um, And um, for me, the the deal is questionable also under that angle. Interests uh, that that I would like to to look at um, uh, fall into two categories, Uh, economic interests, in particular, industrial policy interests. Does this investment agreement serve the purpose of uh, strengthening the renaissance of European industry, the modernization, the digital transformation, the green transformation, of European industry, but there's also uh, another layer, which is the geopolitical interests. And today, as uh, Dmitri Trenin has said, from Carnegie, Moscow, uh, geoeconomics follows geopolitics, not the other way around. So just to, narrow the view on whether we get a little more market access, whether there might be slight improvements with regard to a level playing field issues. That is not an adequate um, measurement. We have to look at the geopolitical implications. And unfortunately, I would say to conclude this deal in this way at this moment Mm. has handed China a major geopolitical victory, and we shouldn't have done that.
1: So let me push back a little bit. On, on, on So you you say that the deal should be criticised because of the standards on uh, human rights, on 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 labour and whatnot. But as as it currently stands, the relationship between the EU and China is very unequal unbalanced. And the EU hasn't been able the past years to change China's behaviour on human rights and forced labour and whatnot let me play a little bit devil's advocate we're probably not going to be able to change china's behaviors on those issues in the future but at least from my understanding this deal makes the life for european companies in china a lot easier allowing them to balance the relationship between the eu and china i think i think this is the kind of best devil's advocate for this agreement that can be made what what would both of you respond to this? maybe francois first and then Reinhard.
4: Ah, uh, first of all the 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 agreement addresses values, which fall under the heading of sustainable development. And only that, it's part of the new generation of supposedly WTO plus agreements, except that WTO arbitration practices have never really recognized uh, these issues as subject to really binding and sanctioned arbitration so in essence whoever you sign it with it's quite a voluntary uh, act and it's only there that you find uh, issues such as labor and forced labor there is in the 70 published pages of the text there is only one mention or actually twice but it's the same mention, just in passing of the u.n declaration of human rights and nothing more labor is there because obviously it's linked to economics to business And that's the justification for including it. And what what the mystery we have there uh, is that China has agreed in principle uh, to extraordinary concessions. For example, the commitment to fight climate change, okay, but also to fight forced labor uh, is on page one of the published text. That's unheard of. you will uh, appreciate the difference between theory and practice. If on climate change, for example, you note that just today, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of China officially uh, declared it would not consider uh, cooperation on climate change with countries that criticize uh, its internal affairs or what it deems to be its internal affairs. So what is affirmed on the one hand, as a principle and seems like a Chinese concession is denied right away uh, by an official uh, declaration on forced labor. Uh, it is true that the Europeans have wrong uh, from China have obtained from China uh, lip service declarations, but when you know the degree of depth of Chinese commitments. You cannot fail to read the sentence that has been agreed for the text that just says that the two parties will endeavor uh, to uh, essentially uh, arrive at a commitment on forced labor. These are actually two uh, ILO conventions. Endeavor means make your best efforts. And as if that was not enough, in the text is added on their own initiative. That is, without a dialogue, without being prodded, and knowing the past record of Chinese commitments, we know that if something is not precisely inked with deadlines, with a sanctioning process, it's as if nothing had been said.
3: I I was going to say that if you go back to China's commitment uh, on joining WTO, that's uh, 2001, it's 19, 20 years ago now, almost. It was already promising to uh, solve issues related to subsidies, to state enterprises, uh, and so on. Uh, Very little changed during that period Hmm. on on this front. On the substance uh, of the agreement, again, uh, we don't know yet exactly what the companies are winning. Uh, We surmise uh, that some people in the auto sector will get reassurance they can have electric car factories, the language I've seen so far is extremely conditional. It's not at all a freedom to invest. It's true in some health sectors, for example, it's partially true uh, for telecom and internet services, but most likely with joint ventures. And many of the other supposedly open sectors that will be listed by the agreement we're going to find out that they were already liberalized, either in a trade deal with the US, that's the case for financial services, or because the uh, China itself, when it has developed a sector, when it has very powerful champions inside China, then it creates an opening. So we are probably, but I'm saying this conditionally, going to find that there is much less than meets the eye uh, when we finally see uh, the actual list of, of opening, that would be my answer.
1: Reynald, right what do you have to say about the devil's advocate case I made, and Francois' a response?
0: Well, I'll, I would say you, you're the best, the best devil's advocate I've met yet. And uh, <laughs> I've discussed uh, uh, discussed with Sabine viant who is a very formidable uh, defender of the deal, but not even she was uh, saying that uh, this deal makes the life of German or French or overall European industry much easier. Um, uh, that would be selling glitter for gold. Um, yeah. And you should take note of the fact that the, the reaction from industry has been pretty lukewarm. Hmm. Um, I've spoken to to people uh, from uh, uh, business associations who privately would uh, say very, very... Uh, Uh, clearly that they're disappointed with the deal. Um, uh, Of course, there are a couple of major corporations, in particular the automotive industry, uh, that uh, have welcomed this very, very much, but that's not the broadly shared view of the business community, and that's for good reasons. Uh, Some of the promises for opening up are just recycled promises. Um, so the chinese uh, are are answering our promise fatigue with recycling uh, um the promises for instance some of the um the uh joint venture regulations that are uh, being dropped uh, now would be dropped uh, because of the uh, foreign investment law anyhow starting 2022 and this deal will hardly um, be ratified before 2022. So sub- substantively, in these cases, we don't win anything additionally. Uh, then there are some promises that are being counteracted by other regulatory measures. So on one hand, the deal says there will be uh, more access for in the financial sector On the other hand, uh, localization mandates that the uh, Chinese government is trying to put in place would make it completely um, impossible for the European banks that already only hold 0.2% of the market share uh, to to, uh, even uh, sustain their, um, uh, their presence in China, they would be driven out of the country formally an opening de facto just the opposite then there are um and uh, um francois already alluded to that there are some interesting strings attached here and there so for instance when when uh, you look at the market opening for the new energy vehicle sector you will find that there is a provision saying you can get such a a, um, a permit for accessing that, that market if there is proof that in the province where you wanna invest, the pre-existing uh, production uh, capacity has been fully uh, exhausted. How can you prove such a case? And how can you uh, prove to, uh, uh, a bureaucracy um, that pursues political imperatives from the CCP uh, that um, they should not use that against you. There's just one exception when this restriction does not apply, and that is if you're able to invest more than $1 billion, hmm.
4: uh
0: in, in one place. Now, that may result in an opening to some big OEMs, but uh, what's the industrial policy consequence? I could imagine that this fits neatly with a Chinese dual circulation strategy that is indeed aiming also at making major international MNCs dependent on the Chinese market, some of the German Automotive companies are already very dependent on the Chinese market, and uh, I have described that as a Gulliver goes to China mechanism, where those major investors would then possibly be forced to integrate even more deeply with the Chinese industrial ecosystem thus rupturing to some, some degree the innovation partnership that they have enjoyed in the past with the SMEs and their supply chains around Europe. So what industrial policy impacts would that have uh, in, in, uh, in uh, the medium and long-term? These are concerns. Then there is no change whatsoever with regard to procurement. And in a, a country where the government plays such a big role uh, procurement is a huge issue, uh, a, a very disappointing, and some of the level playing field issues that um, seem to be juicy, maybe, and of which the the Commission is very proud, saying nobody's ever endeavoured to negotiate uh, such provisions, and and I guess that's even true. Uh, at least Trump didn't try uh, in that regard when when he negotiated his Phase One deal. But what it's worth is depending on the implementation mechanism. And that implementation mechanism looks weak to me. To, to quote Abraham Lincoln, it looks weak as a soup made from the shadow of a pigeon that died of starvation. <laughs> so why is industry not happy because of that?
2: Yeah. Well, this this is really um helpful, Reinhardt, and it really ties nicely into what uh uh Francois was was uh was saying earlier in terms of, you know, we've never, I mean, the record that we, that we the only record that we can work work with in terms of China's market uh uh policies is that only when they've established a dominance in a certain sector is it possible for them to to, to make them you know open that sector up to competition and even then the conditions are very uh very unbalanced but i want to i want to use that as a segue to turn into what i believe um both of you may, may already have in, in the back of your minds which is how this plays into the transatlantic relationship and building a common front uh against china which was uh, certainly joe biden's uh, major pitch to, to uh, our uh, to his european al- allies just before he was met with this fit of, of before being sworn into the Oval Office, finding himself with a totally new makeup, a geopolitical makeup of the world where the Europeans seem to want to signal that they're getting closer to the Chinese. And um, as as Paul um, was say, saying earlier, not only are the, the commercial gains minor, uh, the, com- the commercial gains that we um, may have made uh, at the huge cost of the, the human rights sellout, essentially, we've uh, we could have made even better gains on a trilateral setting. So, right, the, the, the argument goes. And, and my question is, um, not necessarily in the sort of you know, what's your case and what's the devil's was it the, the devil's advocates case? But what do you think? Where, where do we go forward in terms of building this transatlantic approach to China? Is what are what are the channels going to be like? What are you looking forward to, Reinhardt, in terms of working with our American allies to hold China accountable for its abuses? What do you What do you think that that relationship is gonna look like in the next four years? And maybe we'll, for this time, we'll start with Francois and then we'll go to to Reinhardt.
3: I think we should be measured uh, in looking at the impact uh, across the Atlantic. Uh, There's been US shock at realizing that China could score a public diplomacy victory by proving that uh, Europe will sign a separate deal. On the other hand, that was always the case previously And the European response is that, well, there was the January 2020 uh, US-China phase one trade agreement, uh, which included some investment provisions. And so some of the language that the commission uses to justify the the agreement is to say, hey, on some areas, either we got even, or we arrived at the level of concessions uh, that the US had gained. Second, uh, the new administration will realize that apart from words, uh, words on values, words on leveling the playing field, uh, and especially uh, uh, when it concerns items under sustainable development, the gains are either minimal or purely verbal. So they will downplay the agreement. uh, And they will come back to other measures. The EU itself is busy Uh, saying this is only part of our policy towards China. We have defensive tools which we have to improve. We have to coordinate on issues such as tech export and others uh, with the US. It of course depends a lot on what the political balance in Germany will be because this is the economy that is both the largest and the most deeply entangled uh, with China. So there may be disagreements on what is commonly called decoupling Should it be only for national security? Should it be for critical technologies? Should it go even further, for example, to sanctions uh, following Chinese behavior over say, Xinjiang, Uyghurs, or Hong Kong, or any other issue you could name? Uh, There are plenty of crises that are uh, looking to us, by the way, for the next few years. So I don't think this is going to be a tug of war uh, between uh, the new administration and Europe. I think the US administration we we'll look at this as a fade occasion uh, to get a better deal indeed in a, in, in a coordinated way, uh, but we'll move on. And I also think China will move on. One real danger for Europe is the agreement isn't even signed yet. Uh, the, 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 in theory, it's only subject now to legal scrubbing, but with the Chinese illegal scrubbing, that's a pretty serious issue. And we can see uh, the temptation uh, for China to move back towards the U.S. and to tell the Europeans, well, that's it. I mean, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, and then there will be the obstacle of ratification. We haven't talked about that.
0: Well, my my assessment pretty much goes uh, in the same direction. Um, I, I do strongly believe that uh, we should uh, make area in any effort to create a common front, or since this pertains to China, we might even say a united front, do some united front work from our side. Um, And we wasted a great opportunity of demonstrating that not just to the new Biden administration, but also to the Chinese and to the world more broadly as they are watching what they what we are doing. I recall when RCEP was signed, people started commenting that obviously ASEAN was not willing to wait for Biden. Now the echo is, well, neither are the Europeans. They are welcoming Biden by sticking the middle finger to him. Um, And uh, all the arguments um, that that are being being made by Commission, and interestingly, neither uh, the Chancellor nor President Macron, the two erstwhile promoters of this deal, have cared for publicly explaining their their policy. They uh, have left left that to Commission and. Uh, my impression is that uh, President von der Leyen is not particularly happy with the role, the subservient role that uh, uh, the commission played uh, in the last phase of the deal to these uh, national leaders. Um, But uh, the uh, the, uh, world will recognize that for Europe, it is still either... Wandel durch Handel, the old German uh, belief, the old German gospel, we will change our trading partners, may they be authoritarian or even totalitarian through trading with them. That's the old convergence strategy. Or it's even worse, it's, it's maybe a declineist view saying, look, China is going to grow stronger uh, the West is not um, going to be able to unite, so maybe we take what we get. Uh, at least it's not the, the stance of a self-confident geopolitical actor. Um, it is, um, it's been organized in a way as to ignore the geopolitical damage. And when you closely listen to commission, if they can run away from the geopolitical arguments, they will immediately do so. And if they find themselves forced to answer, um, I, I usually get a very interesting argument. It says, but this is expressing strategic autonomy. Now, mm-hmm. you can obviously shoot yourself uh, in the foot autonomously, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, I, I would I would put the question this way. Is it really more important to demonstrate to Washington that we're willing to be autonomous than demonstrating to China that we're willing to team up with our transatlantic partners. Right. Here, the leaders made the wrong decision. They they uh, chose the wrong priority. Yeah. And this is having a negative impact in the US. I, I've spoken to so many people, strong Atlanticists um, uh, from, from the other side of the pond that were, as, as uh, Francois said, stunned. Uh, they they wouldn't have imagined that this this would uh, would happen and um they this creates this creates suspicion is the european offer for collaboration just nice words of course it is a fact that there is a lack of trust and um uh, there, I've I've often heard around Brussels this this one-liner saying, "But what if in four years it goes the other way in Washington?" Yeah. So so the uh, the the negative impact that that Trump has had is not just uh, the the superficial uh, impact of his policies, but a very uh, uh, gra- uh, very uh, deep-going. Um, uh, under undermining of, of uh, transatlantic reliability and transatlantic trust, but having said that, it should be our preeminent effort to create trust where we have uh, an opportunity. I'm not saying we should have asked Uncle Joe for his okay. We can take our own decisions. Well, uh, but it would have been. Uh, an important political signal to say to, to him and to the Chinese and to the world, we will not waste any opportunity of trying to move forward uh, together. And the, the fact that Trump operated unilaterally is not an excuse for doing the same mm. at exactly the moment when Trump is being voted out of office and the opportunity for a different tra- trajectory uh evolves that's really it's it's worse than a crime it's a mistake
1: so i have one question which is a bit beyond the, the question of china and more about the um the question of perhaps one of the the europe's the eu's weaknesses which is every time we have a a partner or a frenemy or an enemy, pressuring the EU and especially the German car making sector. It seems that the, that, the, that Germany and then the EU starts caving in and accepting every demand. And we just talked about about, about Trump, and to a large extent, it was quite quite uh, quite a, a bit of a caricature at some point. But every time. Trump was unhappy with a development within the EU. The very first thing he would do is threaten a tariff on uh, on German cars. Um, so uh, as much as the German car-making sector is a, very, it's a real strength for Germany in, in for, and for Europe, its strength to some become to some extent has become a weakness. How do we limit this Achilles heel of, of Europe? And uh, maybe Francois first?
3: I have a tongue in Cheek answer for that one. Because as it happens, uh, the Trump administration made a lot of threats and nasty words about the German auto industry and the German surplus. But the only actual trade sanctions that were adopted concern wine, alcohol, perfume, handbags, luxury goods, stuff that France makes. So there was a bit of, you know, threaten Germany but punish France. Uh, And that is part uh, of the picture. Uh, Currently, Yes, the auto industry, of course, uh, weighs a lot. There is talk, and uh, Mrs. Merkel herself has alluded to the uh, need for the usefulness of the agreement for Europeans to procure high-tech goods from China, uh, which sounds quite incredible to say, but I think you've got to understand it in in a different way. It's the wish not to be dependent solely on tech from the US Uh, for the digital age uh, for platforms. It's a pretty pessimistic assessment. uh, In fact, Uh, I am not sure that that part of the agreement is very successful uh, because from what I hear, uh, the opening will actually be quite limited. And of course, there is a lot of fear. China will of course, uh, try to get in the most critical sector it has not abandoned its fight, for example, for Huawei. Uh, So this is not an area uh, where we should diverge strongly with the US, uh, we do have issues about the digital tax to solve. I'm happy to to have seen today that at least the French uh, and uh, with Yannetella and the French Minister of the Economy with Yannetella seems to have agreed to a resolution of the issue within OECD. Uh, it would be a welcome solution uh, for this uh, uh, tax issue. Uh, but again, exactly like uh, 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 Reinhardt say, this is the kind of run of the mill business uh, debates and, and 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 you know negotiations we have with the U.S. We've had them for fifty years. We've always had them. They are nothing compared with the fundamental structural uh, divergences that we have with China. So it would be extraordinary if even if we don't solve 100% of the quarrels uh, with an administration in the US that says it wants to improve a relationship with allies and coordinations, we don't arrive at resolution. So I am not one who thinks that there are never second thoughts, that there are not doubts long terms about the possible US isolationism. I don't neglect the fact that Americans are pretty skeptical about Europe's defense mm. efforts and see us as you know, not standing up to what we should do but i don't think that this administration should see how should i say uh, another uh, 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 upsurge of these issues
1: so right now you talk a little bit about the impact of the auto industry on on making the steel what can you say about the general point of the influence of the auto making industry on germany and therefore on the european union well
0: i th- i would say you you put that put that very succinctly uh, our economic strength, our pillar of economic strength, which is the automotive industry, of which at least one in seven jobs in in Germany depends and many more jobs uh, around Europe. That pillar of strength is our greatest weakness. I don't know what the the Chinese translation would be of this... this, uh, 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 American uh, uh, saying that if you got them by the balls, their hearts and minds will follow, but they certainly know how to apply that lesson. Mm. And uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, deciding these issues according to a merely national logic, um, according to geo-economic nationalism, is just behind the curve unless we integrate uh, the the German concerns in the broader uh, European and transatlantic context, we're prone to be um, uh, pressured and to be blackmailed. And it was um, a memorable moment at a public forum organized by Handelsblatt uh, about a year ago or so, where the Chinese ambassador, when when the, the, the conversation touched upon Huawei, he said, well, just hypothetically, uh, thought experiment, what would you say if we came to the conclusion in China that the German automotive industry threatens China's national security? We're, we're, never, we're, we're not even thinking about it, but just what would you think? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, a more obvious threat um, hasn't been made uh, recently. Um, and this uh, certainly um, um, has quite some traction, um, but it is, uh, and again, there is also a basis for not giving into that because uh, if you look at the wider picture of uh, the, the german mittelstand is much more skeptical much less dependent they have been more circumspect with uh, allowing china to take control of some of their technologies and uh, they're they're more reluctant to to get to allow um, uh, this one market to get so overwhelming become so overwhelmingly important for them um of course, I understand that the chancellor wants to to defend the automotive interests, um, and and uh, the, our our industry is in a in, in a deplorable state because they have wasted mi- minimum fifteen years when they could have taken technology leadership. They were completely convinced that they would be strong enough to take the lead whenever it would be necessary and they they uh, lost the moment and of course um, for the german uh, for the german industry um, the problem with china is this they're very strong in the uh, combustion technology segment of the market but that's not going to be the future They're role in the uh, new energy vehicle segment is minute. So unless they can grow their presence in that sector of the market, um, their uh, future looks pretty dire. Uh, This is a motivation that certainly influenced uh, the negotiations. And I am realist enough to say, okay. you have to pay a certain price if that's the situation in which you're in. It's just not the case that you have to pay any price, hmm. and uh, I don't think that the chancellor has understood that.
2: Well, we're we're reaching the end of our conversation. I do want to follow up on this this question of transparency and how how we've seen this this deal emerge from from a very uh, a very unsavory at times interplay of, of private interests and and, and very uh, opaque. Uh, bureaucratic kind of um, machinations. But I, I j- just to kind of stretch this a little further, there, there was a larger uh, point that was made by Reinhardt at the start of our conversation about um, not only the car makers' influence in, in German foreign policy, EU foreign policy, but about the way that uh, Germany uh, you know, played its hand in this whole deal. I mean, you, you were mentioning at the start, Reinhardt, that you know, uh, Merkel's chancellery kind of see- took over right the negotiations at the and you know, the, the last possible minute to just to squeeze out the council presidency and it, it, everything was done in a very um, in a very opaque way with a mandate that that came down seven years ago uh, with a very sort of tactless um timing also i mean you've got to remember that the that no one uh really was opposed to the seven-year negotiation being halted after covid everyone understood that there wasn't going to be a a meaningful uh a meaningful leipzig uh summit every everyone understood that covet changed the ball game entirely on the eu-china partnership and my, my question isn't so much about car makers specifically uh, important though that is, is is about germany's larger role here and, and i think a lot of people are are, are souring on on, on on Germany's hand in, in, in EU foreign policy. And they, they see it as, I mean, Francois will, will be able to speak to this, but yes, there is a certain French component to this outlook where, you know, there, this really ties nicely into strategic autonomy. And there there are, there are people, a lot of people in France who want the EU to play just whatever role, but a role in uh, carving out a space in between uh, the US and China. but. Um, Germany certainly has had the upper hand in in, in bringing this deal to to fruition. Are you concerned at all, uh, perhaps starting with with, uh, Francois and then turning back to Reinhardt, that that Germany uh, is simply too powerful a a player in EU foreign policy? I I mean,
3: you need to face the fact that Germany has the largest economy, has the largest component of... uh, Uh, trade and investment uh, with China. So its power is not, uh, it's not an inheritance from uh, Chancellor Bismarck. It's uh, real and actual. Uh, If I take a French hat for a second, I'm struck by two things. From Germany, the subtext for the agreement seems to be, you know, it's the best we could get. Uh, It's a pretty pretty pessimistic assessment, in fact. From France, there is some uh, you know, positive stuff about strategic autonomy, but essentially, uh, Mr. Macron uh, has uh, persuaded successfully after years, uh, Chancellor Merkel, to go in for more financial and budgetary integration, to go in for the semi-mutualization of EU loans uh, after COVID. And the French want to think it's, it's only the first step on a road that will lead to a more closely integrated Europe. How is he going uh, to take the lead of a disparate, uh, no coalition that involves countries that would be as different as Sweden, for example, as Poland uh, and and, and possibly Italy. It's very difficult. I think I'm not privy to uh, Mr. Macron's thoughts on this. But I think the notion that if you break the Franco-German cooperation on such an issue, you're running a big risk in general Mm. for European affairs must have been very strong. It is true that the French interest in the deal is not absent. And you will find industries uh, which which place hope uh, on the deal, for example, in the bio and pharma sector. And of course, the luxury good wants to, the luxury sector wants to protect itself, but the interests are not huge. But it's this that has uh, played a role, and 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 I think the, the the Germany genuinely feels itself extremely vulnerable first to Chinese blackmail, mm-hmm. and second to missing out on the digital revolution, being the champion of the industrial export age, and not being well placed enough you know, torn, as Mrs. Merkel has sometimes said, uh, between the U.S. and China, between Silicon Valley and, uh, shall we say, Hygiene in Beijing? Certainly the
0: the economic way that Germany plays a role, but I would say in this case, maybe an even bigger role played the fact that Germany had an agenda, the Chancellor had an agenda Mm -hmm. there, and nobody else really had one. Uh, the the French side, forgive me for saying this, but uh, they spoke differently out of two corners of their mouth. The Polish uh, complained, as did the Italians, the Spanish, the Swedish, the Dutch, the Belgians, the Luxembourgish, the Estonians, and the Lithuanians. But neither of those wanted to risk uh, to risk the the double wrath of both. Mrs. Merkel and uh, uh, President uh, Xi Jinping. Um, so uh, even though there were quite some misgivings and quite some uh, some hesitations and uh, still um, um, different countries expressed their dissatisfaction with how it all went, uh, nobody dared standing up and, and, as Francois said, organizing a no front. Um, I would, um, I would think that this could possibly be described as the last battle cry. If, if, if I try to give this a positive uh, um, interpretation, I would say this is the last battle cry of the uh, old German attitude vis-a-vis China, where we were always happy of having a very special relationship uh, a relationship that benefited Germany beautifully uh, in the uh, trade uh, realm. Uh, that was founded on a, 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 a very peculiar uh, sort of economic fit, uh, a high level of complementarity between the German economy and the Chinese economy. We produced for the Chinese the luxury cars and the high-tech products that they uh, craved for, and they supplied our market with uh, um, um, pricey uh, commodities. There was hardly much competition. That was different from the situation of other European economies like Poland or even Italy. Uh, But since China has started moving up through the value chain, and that became apparent when uh, when they published their "Made in China 2025" strategy at the latest, or when they happened to buy Kuka, uh, um, uh, that that robotics firm from Augsburg. Um, the German engineers uh, began understanding that the Chinese were out to eat the Germans' lunch, and that changed attitudes. And, and I would say, in in If you look at the broader picture, Germany has, as the Chinese have tried to become more German uh, uh, technology-wise, the Germans became more European politically, because they, they found themselves more in a situation that was comparable, beginning to be comparable to the experience of their neighbors. Uh, So Germany was part of the uh, investment screening initiative together with France and Italy. It has supported the um, 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 anti-dumping scheme that we put in place. Uh, It promised to to support uh, the international procurement instrument. So there was a tendency of Germany uh, coming closer together with the rest of the EU, and this deal now is an instance of the old German Sonderweg in in, in the relationship with China that may go away with the chancellor. I'm I'm not uh, completely sure, uh, and she went to quite some lengths to to force uh, enforce that point. She even managed to use her presidency to slow down the legislative work in the Council on the international procurement instrument because you wanted to do China a favor. So this is, interestingly, uh, um, a point where we should watch out very closely because, of course, Commission now says uh, we have our unilateral measures, our defensive instruments that we can, of course, use at will. We have the freedom to legislate, but if, one or two big players around Europe put their foot on the brake, then all of that will not happen. I hope that my optimistic interpretation that this was the last clarion call of yesterday's trumpet uh, could be true. Uh, we'll see.
1: Thank you very much for this very insightful and thorough analysis, Reinhard and Kassler. Uh, I think we can conclude on that note. and Thank you very much for your tuning in.
2: Great. Well, the, uh, the MEP and Mr. Goodman are, are out. Uh, what did you think of this episode, Francois?
1: I've always really interesting because we had probably two of the most knowledgeable people on, on the European-China relations and on the agreement specifically. Obviously, we invited two, two critics of a deal, so we had to push back a little bit. In one scenario, we don't get a deal and we still get no, um, uh, no capacity to influence China's record on human rights. In the other in the other scenario, which is a scenario we seem to have right now, uh, at least we get a quick buck, but we still have no capacity to together to change China's uh, record on human rights. So it's kind of a very cynical case for this. Um, but I think I think it kind of leads more generally to the question of can democracies trade with uh, autocracies or 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 you know uh, uh, regimes which are very far away from our democratic standards. Is it possible, to paraphrase um, the late Yitzhak Rabin, is it possible to trade like there's no human rights violation and scrutinize human rights violation like there's no trade deal? And I think that's something we have to, to, to keep, keep thinking about because uh, we, we all agree that China's human rights record is, is, is horrendous and there's a lot of terrifying stuff coming from the camps in Xinjiang and whatnot. Um, but we also realistically can't cut all trade deals whatsoever. Um, And so I thought some of the criticism coming from the United States was understandable because, you know, the timing was was horrific. It was clearly a communication victory for for Beijing um, weeks before the inauguration of um, Joe Biden. However, I thought some of the criticism was also a bit unfair because the conditions the Europeans managed to get from the Chinese are pretty much identical to the conditions the Americans managed to extract from the Chinese uh, under Donald Trump after the uh, trade spats. So, you know, I I think as much as I understand the, the, the feeling of betrayal... Um, there's also kind of a leveling of relations between the EU and China which had already been done by the United States a few months before that
2: yeah i'll you know what i'll I'll pick you up on on your first point first and what I think one of the one of the issues that we tended to miss I think in the episode um, um albeit I think at some point uh, francois goodman mentioned it is that uh what we've seen unravel with this deal is the um the long-standing EU policy to to at least seek to to what's been called compartmentalizing uh, economic policy, and kind of uh, as you mentioned, uh, trying to parse out the trade areas from the human rights. and And I think uh, there, there was a very interesting piece in Politico just in the wake of the deal that essentially was was reporting on how everyone agrees that this is this deal marks the end of that kind of uh, policy of, of compartmentalizing, because everyone understands that you cannot. At this stage in in, uh, in in China's development of its sort of authoritarian, uh, you know, economically nationalistic state, there is no way that you can say, okay, well, listen, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna we're gonna stitch together a trade deal on this front, and then at the same time on these other fora such as the ILO or or other multilateral settings, we're gonna we're still gonna call you out because essentially what happens is. Um, uh, with this deal, uh, there was one small effort made to get sign- to get China to sign up to a few remaining uh, protocols by the International Labour Organization, the ILO, which I think is based in Geneva. There was a, s- a small effort made that I think was pushed primarily by Macron and uh, Franck Riester, I think it made. And so I think, and and they came out to be in the in the days leading up to the deal. Macron and his minister um, kind of uh, cut out the the more kind of China hawkish uh, figure. Of of all the EU leaders and, and their their strategy was to listen. Let's at least get China to sign up to a standard of of, um, of protocols that it, it is going to be the ILO's job to to enforce to make sure that it that it lives up to and and at the very least we can you know we can save face. Um, and what happened is that they they did that, but at the same time they forgot to even mention in the deal. The growing evidence. I think there's been a number of reports by um, human rights organizations uh, over the years. Number of reports that have started using the term of slavery as applied to Xinjiang and the the forced labor uh, camps in in that part of China for the, for the Uyghur minority. And it, the the deal itself, the draft of the deal, doesn't even mention what's going on in Xinjiang, or at least it doesn't it doesn't mention it explicitly. So. So you have this, the EU was, was still, it still believed that it could, you know, okay, well, let's let's do this sort of um, very real politic deal with China that is going to allow for some market access for our companies and leave the human rights issues for different fora. And that simply didn't work. Uh, people saw, and the way that the media as a whole is covering this deal is as a sellout. Um, people are seeing that the EU is giving up on human rights as a way to advance market access, and so you can't, you can no longer separate the two. You have to sacrifice one in service of the other.
1: Oh, I, I, I agree. And there's always a principle of reality, you know. In the end, might is right. Uh, sadly, and uh, it's a lot easier to lecture smaller countries on human rights when you're the European Union than lecturing China because uh, China is just so central to our economic system. Um, I think, I think there's another point which was interesting was. Uh, both of them were very frank, especially uh, Reinhard Butikov. I was very uh, I wasn't sure what to expect, but his his frankness was very uh, was was grateful for for podcast because he didn't dodge any question. Uh, and and on the question of the um, the German auto making uh, lobby, the kind of it's a very powerful sector. It employs, I think, one in seven Germans. Um, and I, it has become so powerful, but it's a weakness. Yeah. And,
2: and and I thought your question to him, Franco, was really piercing and, and almost uh, and and almost kind of um in a in a landmine type landmine type of fashion. And I think he treaded carefully when he was answering your question about the car industry. Let's just remind our audience that here here comes the. Uh, a leading figure i mean over the years uh, my understanding is butikofer rose up nationally first to be the president of the german greens the grüne political force to be reckoned with it's not as if it, we're not talking about the french greens and nor the spanish greens we're talking about the german greens and your question was well, look we have the, the car industry and when when you were asking that question my the thought in the back of my mind was one of the main industries that has gained a lot of that has a lot to gain from this deal is the electric vehicles industry, which is also primarily German, but it's kind of, in a way, lobbies different. So what he, I mean, obviously I, I can imagine that uh, the electric, the EV industry um, would, would find a lot to love in someone like Beauty Gofer, but he didn't necessarily pander to them. He said, um, he said, you know, that it's, it's, yes, it is an industry that has an oversized, oversized influence in germany and and he was as you said he was pretty frank but sorry to cut you off.
1: yeah no no but I, and, and i think there's no easy answer because it's a, it's it's a strength for germany um but at the same time it's become a weakness and and it's very hard to, how do you manage to limit the liability causes for germany and therefore for the eu i think there's no there's no easy answer and there's not there's, there's not even a start of a, of a reflection on this and i think that's something we should start thinking about is how do we keep a a um, uh, successful German industry without making it a liability for the rest of Europe. And that's maybe a, a line of thinking we should keep uh, for, for further episodes. Yeah,
2: and it, it was also very interesting just to, just to kind of wrap, wrap up with this is um, yeah. my, I was also rather surprised by uh, Goodman's answer to this because he said, you know, look, Germany is just uh, an economic uh, uh, hegemon in Europe and you have to adjust to it. You have to recognize that it will leverage its power in in trade negotiations and and that much i can i can concede i can understand Uh, but the larger point that we perhaps could have gotten into in in this conversation is that it isn't just about the car making industry it's generally the way that i feel is that germany has co-opted much of the um economic diplomacy for that the eu uses to to advance its interests. when you look at uh, chambers of commerce for instance the european chamber of, of commerce in in beijing the european chamber of commerce in washington these institutions are all heavily populated by German businessmen and German lobbyists. Germany has been very, very um, cunning in the way that it's deployed its um, rhetoric and its, its sort of um, you know its its own image to uh, to uh, speak on behalf of Europe as a whole. And I think a lot of that extends to the think tank world as well. When you think of the people that you you yourself speak to at the Atlantic Council and whatnot. Uh, I mean, Germany has, has, a, has a hefty presence in, in Washington and the think tank world. Obviously, the German Marshall Fund is the chief example, but not the only one. And uh, I, I think we could have uh, stretched some of that argument out into, into the larger question of Germany as the almost like the de facto voice of Europe on economic matters. And I think that on, on that issue specifically, there's there's some resentment I think a lot of people resent that Germany um, has has you know um, kind of uh, tries to speak as, as, as uh, the European voice
1: well that might be a, a great episode in the future that's something we should keep in mind um, but anyways thank you very much for tuning in you can um, please like and subscribe and review the show it, tr- it helps us tremendously reach out to a uh, get an audience it helps us have the extra motivation which keeps us getting fantastic guests for all of you so Again, thanks for tuning in and uh, see you next week.